Well, we're coming to the end of Hebrews now, Hebrews 13, and I want to just recap <clears throat> some of the things that I said earlier about Hebrews really being the transcript of a sermon or an exhortation or a homily that was given at the breaking of bread, and this is what makes it so relevant to us. Now, it's written to Hebrews, and they were uh, initially meeting, I, I guess, either in synagogues or in synagogues that had accepted uh, Jesus as Messiah, or they were meeting with uh, other Jews in a synagogue sort of style. And he talks in Hebrews 13, uh, here in verse 17 and verse uh, 24, them that have the, sorry, verse 7, uh, verse 17 and 24, about those who have the rule over you. And that's very much the language of the ruler of the synagogue that uh, you, you read of earlier in the New Testament in Acts 18, verse 8, in Luke 8, 49, 13, 14, etc. So then they were Hebrews, they were Jews, Jewish uh, people who had accepted Jesus as Messiah, and they were used to that uh, synagogue style of worship. And so in verse 22, when he says, Suffer this word of exhortation, that phrase, word of exhortation, the only other time you get it is in Acts 13, verse 15, where again, uh, it's used about the, uh, the word of exhortation given at a synagogue service. When he says, this word of exhortation is written to you in a few words, it seems to me that what, this, uh, what we're reading here in Hebrews uh, is really a transcript, a writing down of what he calls the few words that have been said. And if you read Hebrews right through, you can read it through in 40 minutes or so, 50 minutes, uh, and maybe a few words. I mean, remember Paul gave a talk that went on so long that a guy fell asleep and fell out of a window, then he got resurrected, and then Paul carried on preaching until the, uh, till the break of day. So, relatively speaking, perhaps, it was a short one. And he says that uh, this is... Uh, written in a few words and yet the Greek really seems to mean a short time a little while so it's as if he's uh, saying that this, this took just a short time this is a short one and that would fit in with a couple of references you've got in Hebrews which I imply that time is running out. He says, Hebrews 9 verse 5, about the cherubim, of which we can't now speak in detail, as if, look, I would love to, but time's running out. Uh, Hebrews 11:32. what shall I more say? For the time is failing me. Running out. Okay, got to go. Uh, that, that is all language which I would argue is appropriate to... Uh, a verbal address rather than a sort of a consciously lit written down letter by somebody sitting down to write a letter. And I pointed out earlier when we talked about Hebrews that there are 22 references in this letter or in this exhortation to the blood of Jesus uh, and, and another 17 to the sacrifice or the offering uh, and uh, four references to the body of Christ. And I've suggested that that would be very relevant to a group of people who were sitting down to partake in the uh, symbols of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, of his body, of his sacrifice. And then in Hebrews 12, verse 8, we are partakers uh, in Christ. And actually, uh, you've got the same uh, Greek word in chapter 1, verse 9. We are his uh, fellows, partakers in him. And 
The same word is, is used in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 17 and 21, which talks about us being partakers of the one bread, of the breaking of bread, partaking of the Lord's table. So it's all kind of relevant to partaking in, in him at the breaking of bread. And so here in chapter 13, I think he's sort of leading up to a grand finale. Verse 15, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That's very similar to the sort of synagogue language and the language of the, the temple cult that they would have been used to about let us now partake of the sacrifice, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. And it also fits in with the theme you've got in chapter 4, 16 and 7, 19. Let us draw near. We draw near. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. I, I know that's obviously talking in a sense about prayer and our individual coming to God, but it all takes on a great relevance, I think, if we understand this as the, uh, the speaker inviting the congregation to now stand in praise and to take these uh, emblems. And so he keeps on uh, implying pretty uh, strongly that they have got to leave uh, Judaism and the, uh, the whole synagogue-temple cult. So in verse 13 here, Let us go forth therefore unto Jesus without the camp, uh, bearing his reproach. Let's go out of the city. And you could even argue that that is a reference to the Lord's command to leave Jerusalem when you see it surrounded by armies. Of course, initially, as Josephus explains in, the, in his book, The Jewish War, uh, the Jews in Palestine revolted against the Romans in AD 66-70, and initially everything went well. The Romans were defeated at the foot of the Temple Mount, uh, and uh, the Jews ascribed that victory to their loyalty to the law. And they purified and rededicated the temple. They got a new high priest who was not a collaborator with Rome. And they hold themselves up there in the city to fight to, to the end. And all the Jews are expected to take up arms and fight. And so this exhortation to leave the city, as Jesus did, and go outside it, I think it may even have a literal element to it. Now, from verse 11 to verse 15, you, you've got a particular focus upon partaking in the body of, of Jesus. And it's an appropriate uh, conclusion, really, I think, to, to this exhortation. He compares us, verse 10, to the priests who are eating the sacrifice on the altar. We have an altar, but they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. That, of course, is so appropriate to partaking the emblems at the memorial meeting. And he goes on to, to say the bodies of those beasts uh, looked forward to Jesus, who sanctified the people with his own blood, suffered, let us go forth therefore unto him, bearing his reproach, etc. So I, I see this all leading up to this great uh, moment of taking the, the symbols of the Lord's body and blood. But of course all the time in, in this whole exhortation, as I would call it, we have practical exhortation, that all this is to mean something in practice for us. So let's just uh, start off uh, back in verse 2. Don't be forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels 
unawares, and he's clearly talking about Abraham and uh, Lot uh, having done that. And uh, I'll leave it for you to discuss afterwards, or to just ask yourself, uh, surely this would imply the logic of what he's saying, that it's quite possible that we might meet people in our lives who appear strangers, but are, are in fact angels. I, 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 I'm not really a literalist, but I, I, I find that conclusion rather difficult to avoid, really, uh, from, from what he writes here, or what he said, maybe, and what was written down. And uh, there's a few incidents in my life where I have felt that, someone appearing um, who was, I say an angel. It could be, of course, that the angel was manifest just in some ordinary person. Uh, that's possible. And several times I've raised the question in, in group discussion. Uh, I, I've shared incidents that, that, uh, that I've had when I feel that happened. And I've said to people, you know, so has anyone else had anything like this happen? And I've been amazed. Uh, people are a bit shy to start with, but uh, I'm amazed at what's come out. And enough other people have given testimony of strange appearances or meeting with someone who afterwards you, you feel, no, that kind of, he was a human or she was a woman, but um, that, that there was something divine there. That person just appeared on the scene. Um, I, I've had a couple of cases uh, of, from people from different ends of the world, uh, in Australia and in Latvia, here in, in Europe, uh, of people talking about drowning incidents where somebody appeared uh, and saved them um, from what appeared to be certain death and all sorts of other things where, where people have been in hard situations and, uh, and suddenly someone has appeared on the scene and as I say I, I, I've had a couple of those and uh, I'm the last person I, I, I'm sort of very phlegmatic in that sense um, I'm the last person to sort of be into uh, you know, rabbits jumping out of hats and all that kind of thing but as I say, personal testimony from people as uh, hard, hard bitten as myself uh, and from other people likewise lead me to understand this maybe literally. Why not? Anyway, it goes on in verse 3. Remember them that are in bonds, there were some of them, some of the other believers in prison, as if you're bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Now, why does he put it that way? Why doesn't he say, as if you are in their body? Why does he talk about the body? Don't forget what we've just said, that there's a big emphasis in Hebrews on the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And so, the body, does this refer to their body, the body of the sufferer who's bound in prison, or to the body of Christ? And I suppose it's uh, perhaps to both. In that, if we are truly in Christ, if we are in his body, which we symbolize and celebrate by, by breaking bread, the, the symbol of his body, then it seems to me that therefore and thereby we are, as it were, in the body with all those who are also in Christ. That's why division within the body of Christ ultimately does not exist from God's, uh, God's perspective. The point is, in practice, that we should be able to find a real sympathy and fellow feeling with others in their sufferings because we are in the body. And you may say, but that's impossible. You cannot empathize with another person when they're going through something that you have not been through, and of course vice versa. What you go through, 
others cannot, uh, as it were, feel it in the body. That, that is true, humanly speaking, but I, I wonder if what he's saying here is that if we are truly in Christ, if we are really in his body, then there opens up, through the work of the Spirit, through the wonderful things that it means to be in Christ, and what he happens to us and what he does for us as a result of that, uh, I wonder if what he's saying is that there is actually the opportunity and the possibility, the capability of a special empathy with others who are in the body of Christ that would not otherwise be possible. He says there that we are to remember them that are in bonds, and the only other time the Greek word translated remember occurs is also in Hebrews, in chapter 2 verse 3, what is man that you are mindful of him? So God's mindfulness of us, we who are just little sacks of dust and water walking around on this speck of a planet in, in the vastness of the cosmos, his mindfulness of us, his extension out of himself into our lives, and particularly through the work of his son, which, if you like, on a human, uh, let's say mechanical level, enables him, if I may use that word, uh, to know our state and to be mindful of us. That in the same way as God in Christ has done that for us, we are to do that for others. In other words, not to lock ourselves up within ourselves and just ignore uh, the sufferings of others, uh, but to get involved. And of course, whenever you get involved in other people's sufferings, you end up getting hurt. You know, they turn against you, you're misinterpreted, you're beat up for doing good, no good deed goes unpunished, etc. And that's history of my life, really. It's history of a lot of people's lives. And that is how it must be, because it cannot be painless to assist another person, to suffer in the body with them. You know, you see somebody in need, and so you try to raise funds for them, and you get beat up because of it, and or whatever it might be, or, or you go around and visit somebody and, and you're accused of inappropriate involvement, of tampering, of interference, and, and the rest of it. And the more you, you go through that, the harder it is to keep on living like that and being like that. But the point is that that is the spirit of the cross, because that is God's being mindful of us. How beat up has he got, uh, and uh, Jesus, uh, because of their mindfulness of us, and exactly because they do not cut us adrift in the cosmos to just spin on as this planet does to its own, in a sense, self-destruction and the people on the planet likewise choosing their own destruction through their own folly. God has not cut us off. God has not cut us adrift even though we keep trying to cut him off. And so that is the spirit, I think, in which we should, as it were, suffer in the body with others. Now, I talked about angels in verse 2, and oddly enough, I think that that theme of angels continues in verse 5. Don't forget, he's writing the Jews, and Jews are very into uh, angels. He, he says there in, in verse 5 that we should not be uh, covetous, we should not be materialistic, we should be content with what we have. Why? Because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, they are, of course, the words of Moses to Joshua. Deuteronomy 31, 3, 6, and 7. He will not leave you, nor forsake you, therefore be strong, because the Lord your God goes with you. Now, 
we are being invited to see ourselves as Joshua. And Joshua, of course, means Jesus. It's the same word. And so, because we are in Christ, all that is true of him, all that was true of Joshua, becomes true of us. And even on a sort of a wider level, this is the wonder of the Bible, that all the biblical history that's recorded invites us to put ourselves in the position of those people, that we are invited to see ourselves as Joshua, so that we may boldly say, verse 6, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And so, in verse 13, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp. I mean, that again seems to be an allusion to Joshua, because uh, he went out of the camp to be with Moses in the tabernacle that he pitched uh, at the time of Israel's rebellion outside the camp, and he, uh, he stayed there. So I think he's saying that Joshua, in that sense, is all of us. Now, when Moses says to him, look, be strong and of a good courage, Joshua, because God has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What he actually says is, uh, the Lord your God, he will go over, it's over Jordan, before you. The Lord your God, he says, he it is that goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Now, in what sense did the Lord your God go over Jordan in front of him? Well, it was in the form of the angel, that the angel was sent ahead of them to seek out a resting place and ultimately to drive out the um, tribes out of, out of Canaan. And so Moses is encouraging Joshua, I think, to follow the angel. Go where he has gone, like David did, you know, when he heard the sound of a going in the mulberry trees, then he moved forward. Ezekiel and the cherubim visions that we, as the wheels on earth, are to go where the angel cherubim above us uh, lead us. In their case, it was, uh, first of all, into captivity in Babylon and then back from Babylon to Jerusalem. That was the idea, that they should have followed where the angel led. And so he's saying in that same context, uh, that this context of angels that he's opened up in verse 2, he's saying that, look, God, through the angels, and you know, he's talking to Jewish people who are very conscious of angelic activity, God, through the angels, has gone before you to prepare a place for you in God's kingdom. He will never leave you, nor forsake you, so you can boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And so, in the same way as God did not forsake Joshua, so he will surely lead us into inheritance in his kingdom if we keep following where we are led and life is a journey and it's pretty fashionable these days to talk about oh yeah I'm on a journey but of course the question is the journey where to and are you going the right way the, the journey that we should be taking is the one that is following the prompts which God and Jesus maybe through the ministry of angels uh, bring into our lives and follow where we are being led and so because of that, he says, and he's so practical, you know, verse 5, let your way of life be without covetousness and be content with what you have. And, you know, we live in an age where the way of life of seeking more things materially is absolutely all around us. It's insidious. 
And so he he continues here, and uh, so he gets closer to the the bread and wine, and he says in verse nine, "Don't be carried away with various and strange doctrines. Um, and let the heart be established with grace, and not with concerns about food." Now we may assume that when Paul talks in his letters and when this writer here, maybe it was Paul, maybe not, uh, talks about um, food issues, that he's actually talking about what type of food should be eaten, whether the dietary laws of Moses should be kept or not. And he may have that in mind, but I think the the bigger issue about Jewish food laws that he has, uh, that he's brought before us here, it is not only the issue of what type of food you eat, but with whom you eat that food. Remember in Acts 11.3, Peter explains how totally radical it was for a Jew to even eat with a Gentile, let alone in a, uh, in a religious context. And so there was this issue that Jews and Gentiles should not break bread together. And this is, I think, why one of the reasons, anyway, why the Jews hated Jesus so much, because his, if you like, his table manners, eating with sinners, when eating together, sharing your bread, breaking your bread together with a guy like Zacchaeus, uh, was seen to, to be the ultimate insult, really, of everything that was Jewish. The whole tradition of uh, the Jewish faith depended upon this kind of ritual purity uh, at mealtimes. And that, again, would be a very appropriate thing to raise in the context of breaking bread. Not, you know, whether you should eat pork or not, or eat, I don't know, shellfish, or whatever the issue is, or eels. Uh, but the, the issue to do with food laws, I think, is more to do with whom you eat. And, of course, the absolutely open table of Jesus was so radical, and it, and it is for us today. And it was something that they struggled with uh, back then, that... Jew and Gentile believers in Christ were not supposed to eat together and you know he's saying let the heart be established with grace now verse 13 then let us go forth therefore unto Jesus without the camp bearing his reproach the allusion is or there's a number of allusions here um, I mean there's an allusion to, to the leper uh, Leviticus 13.46 uh, who had to go forth without the camp um, there's an allusion as I've said to maybe physically literally leaving Jerusalem or to more symbolically leaving the Jewish system of, of things the temple cult um, but in another sense the perhaps most obvious reference is to Jesus uh, walking the Via Dolorosa, going out to be crucified outside the, the camp. And we are to go forth, as it were, behind him, bearing his reproach, just as somebody had to carry uh, the cross of, of Jesus. And so we are being invited to see ourselves in the procession that went out of Jerusalem with Jesus. This is so relevant to how to finish off a, an exhortation at the breaking of bread. That really we are asked to carry his cross. And let's make no mistake about that. That will result in reproach. It will not result in being accepted or being felt to have done the smart thing. It, it, it's, uh, 
it, it does involve rejection by others, and that is simply part of carrying the cross. And let us let us face that. Instead of keep an arm trying to squiggle and wiggle our way around it, so that we can have uh, acceptance uh, in the eyes of people in this life, and also claim to be carrying the cross. You can't do it. The two things are uh, mutually opposed. I I think. And then finally, verse 15, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Now, the sacrifice of thanksgiving is another term for the peace offering. And the peace offering was offered to praise and thank God and to celebrate for the peace which we have with God uh, through his forgiveness of us. And the sacrifice of praise, which he talks about there in verse 15, uh, this is also uh, quoting out of Jeremiah 33, verse 11. We're talking in the context of uh, the New Covenant. It talks about how uh, Israel will offer the sacrifice of praise for his mercy at their final restoration, that is, at the beginning of, of the kingdom. And yet we are asked to do that now. Because, really, we have received that forgiveness here and now. And therefore we are to continually confess our sins, to continually offer the sacrifice of praise, because we are continually in receipt of, of his mercy. And so that is where we're up to now, that we have been forgiven. And the breaking of bread in that sense is a celebration of what has been achieved for us. It's not that our future has this big question mark over it at the Day of Judgment, that our final eternal destiny is still under question. For we who are in Christ, we are secure in him. And therefore, sure, we continually confess our sins, we continually receive God's mercy, and therefore we continually offer this sacrifice of praise for his mercy, Jeremiah 33 11. And so, by him, therefore, let us offer right now the sacrifice of praise to God continually.